Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Part 3. For more resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We closed last time by talking about the prominent ministries of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that the Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of a habitable planet uh, on the earth, uh, that he was involved in divine revelation uh, and the inspiration of the scriptures, that he was responsible for the virginal conception of Jesus, and that in our lives, it's through the Holy Spirit that we experience the new birth, regeneration to spiritual life. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit when we become a Christian and baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Continuing on, number seven is that the Holy Spirit gives us the assurance of our salvation. Look at Romans chapter eight, verses 14 to 16. Romans chapter eight, verses 14 to 16. Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So it is through the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we have confidence and assurance that we are, in fact, saved, that we belong to Christ, that we are children of God. Number eight, the Holy Spirit gives enablement for spiritual living. It is through the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to live a godly life. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, and verse 25. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, and verse 25. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So as Christians, we're not to be merely indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we're to be walking daily in the power of the Holy Spirit, and this will help us to overcome the sinful desires of our fallen human nature that would drag us down, pull us back, uh, and mire us in sin. It is through the enablement of the Holy Spirit that we're able to, to transcend our fallen human nature and to live godly lives uh, that honor Christ. Number nine, the Holy Spirit is the source of spiritual gifts for building up the body of Christ. He's the source of spiritual gifts for building up the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. Here Paul describes some of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. He says in verse 4 of chapter 12, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, witness or various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are inspired by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So according to Paul, the Holy Spirit has gifted the church with all of these special spiritual abilities distributed according to his will to operate for the building up of the body of Christ. And that means that you have a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit has bestowed upon you, which you are to be exercising in the context of your local Christian uh, community. And finally, number 10, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit produces uh, spiritual fruit in our lives. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Galatians 5, 22 uh, and 23. After listing the works of the flesh, Paul then goes on to say in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is not, properly speaking, these uh, spiritual gifts. Everyone is given a spiritual gift for serving the body of Christ. But the way the Holy Spirit is manifested in the life of someone who's walking in the Spirit is the production of these character qualities, these virtues that are produced in the person, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so forth. These are the real fruit or signs of the filling of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. So, you look at this list of prominent ministries of the Holy Spirit, and I think you can't help but ask yourself, how in the world could the Holy Spirit have ever become the forgotten person of the Trinity? Um, as I said, because he's just there right from the beginning and is absolutely vital uh, in every respect of the Christian life. Any discussion or comment about this point? Yes, Bob in the back. Yes, Bill, one other ministry for those of us that believe that you cannot lose your salvation is Ephesians 1.13. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Good. Thank you, Bob. Regardless of how you interpret the perseverance of the saint, as Bob says, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that's S-E-A-L, is right here in Scripture so that every Christian is not only indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he's sealed by the Holy Spirit um, for the day of redemption. So good point. Thank you. Any other comments? Yeah, Cash. There's a uh, really interesting article that I saw going around on uh, Facebook recently that says, uh, survey finds most American Christians are actually heretics. And um, so there, and, and this is not just like nominal, you know, Christian, like, you know, different, you know, groups, but this is actually evangelicals. And um, I, I was trying to find the, uh, the exact statistic here, but a shockingly high number of people actually said, yeah, it says, um, Everyone expected evangelicals to perform better than most Americans. No one expected them to perform worse. Seven in ten evangelicals, more than the population at large, said that Jesus was the first being God created. Fifty-six percent agreed that the Holy Spirit is a divine force, but not a personal being. Oh. They also saw a huge increase in evangelicals, 28%, up from 9%, who indicated that the third person of the Trinity is not equal with God, the Father, or Jesus. A direct contradiction of Orthodox Christianity. The Holy Spirit is, of course, used to being overlooked, but sources say he is, seems to be bummed about these results. <laughs> so 56%, 56%. think that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force right. rather he, than he's a, a divine a, force, not a personal yeah. being, and he's not even actually like part of the Trinity. I mean, there seem to be some sort of Vitarian yeah. believers that, I mean, he's not even God. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think my suspicion is, Cash, that what this reflects is the kind of new mode of evangelical Christianity in this country that's focused on emotional worship experiences, entertainment, being seeker-friendly, being contemporary, but has very little instruction. A Sunday school classes for adults are a rare thing these days. People are not taught Christian doctrine. They just go weekly and get their fix in uh, the worship service. And, and what they actually believe as Christians is allowed to slide. And J.P. Moreland, my colleague at Talbot, in his book, Love Your God With All Your Mind, has warned that the church is in danger, as he puts it, of becoming its own grave digger. Because in another generation, people raised in those kinds of churches cannot but help slip away into all sorts of heretical and non-Christian doctrines. That, that in seeking to swell its numbers by accommodating itself to contemporary culture, the church will actually commit a kind of suicide. That's very sobering. I think there was a comment over here. No. Okay. George? Bill, uh, I think last week you mentioned that uh, the Holy Spirit is a source of wisdom for believers. Uh, maybe you put that under um, divine revelation in your uh, outline. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not in my notes. Um, anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> perhaps I said it. Just uh -huh. to just a comment on that. Yes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 
chapters one through three, Paul lays side by side um, what he calls the wisdom of the world yeah. or Gentiles or the Greeks and Christian wisdom. And he seems to say, and he's talking back to the Corinthians where he's been, according to Acts 18, for a year and a half. He says uh, that uh, the Greeks consider spiritual wisdom uh, that Paul is espousing to be foolishness. And they seem to, the Greeks or the Gentiles seem to be hard-headed, empiricist. And uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. And uh, I guess uh, you cannot empirically test um, you can't perceive through the five senses the work of the Holy Spirit to produce wisdom. Mm -hmm. But Paul says that true wisdom is from God. And he, in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says that the Spirit knows the mind of God, the thoughts of God. And somehow Christians can partake in that through their relationship with Christ. And it seems to me it's worth emphasizing um, that that is a source available to all Christians uh, I think in the passage on the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, it mentions a word of wisdom as being a gift given to some, maybe not to all. But the wisdom here in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 through 3, I think, is available to all Christians. Right. And it's something we're encouraged to take advantage of, even though, you know, when Paul was in Athens in Acts 17, <clears throat> some of the philosophers said, that uh, he was an idle babbler and right. was, pre was preaching strange deities, and they couldn't understand what he was talking about. So it seems to me it's worth emphasizing this is a different source of wisdom than what Paul is talking about, the wisdom of the world. Yeah, I think Paul probably would have thought that those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that he met in Athens were, in God's sight, foolish. Uh, that, that the kind of philosophy that they had was uh, godless, philosophy that took no cognizance of God's creation of the world, um, and that this really did represent the foolish wisdom of the world. Um, but doing philosophy from a Christian perspective, with Christian assumptions and presuppositions, as Paul says, this is the wisdom of God, even if in the eyes of the world they think that it's foolish to uh, believe in God and Christian truth. And you're right, this is this is a kind of wisdom that is not a gift of the Spirit um, in the sense of spiritual gifts, but this is uh, uh, to all Christians who have this kind of um, wisdom uh, that is found in Christ. Well, we want to turn now to a discussion of the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament in contrast to the role played by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Prior to Pentecost, which is the sort of hinge of history with regard to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world, the Holy Spirit would come upon persons to indwell them to perform some special specific purpose, some appointed task that God had in mind for them. And there are numerous examples of this in the Old Testament. So let's just read about some of these. Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 to 3, and then 35, verses 30 to 35. Exodus 31, 1 to 3, and then 
chapter 35, verses 30 to 5. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. And goes on to describe how God had gifted this man uh, in order to be the designer and constructor of the tabernacle. This is expanded on in chapter 35, verses 30 to 35. Exodus 30, verses, um, rather, Exodus 35, verses 30 to 35. And Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with ability to do every sort of work done by a craftsman or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet stuff and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. So here in a very practical way, God had filled with his Holy Spirit these men to do artistic uh, crafts. Uh, in wood and gems and stone and cloth um, for the uh, equipping and decoration of um, the tabernacle. So this would be a good example of a specific place where the Holy Spirit was put upon someone to carry out a specific uh, job and giving him the ability to do that. Now turn over to Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16. Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16. Here Moses needs help in judging the people of Israel, settling their disputes. And so the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down uh, and talk with you there and I will take some of the spirit which is upon you and put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. And then verse 25, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was upon him and put it upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did so no more. So here you see how the Spirit of God uh, comes down and anoints these 70 elders to do the same work that God had anointed Moses to do by his Holy Spirit. During the period of the judges prior to the monarchy in Israel, there was a series of judges that would arise in Israel that would serve to 
um, deliver the people from uh, their enemies uh, to bring them back to the true way. And these judges were typically anointed by the Holy Spirit of God to do what God had called them to do. So look, for example, at Judges chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Judges chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. But when the people of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishthaim, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So here Othniel would be one of these judges upon whom the Spirit of the Lord came so that he could prevail uh, and over the enemies threatening Israel. Turn over to Judges chapter 6 and verse 34 for another example. Acts chapter, or rather, uh, Judges chapter 6 and verse 34. And this is one of the most famous of the judges, Gideon. Verse 34 of Judges 6, but the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And then it describes the great triumph that Gideon and his small uh, army had over the enemies of Israel. So Gideon was also anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to do what God called him to do, to deliver Israel. Judges 11 and verse 29. Judges 11 and verse 29. This is the case of Jephthah. Verse 29 of Judges 11. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And then Jephthah also uh, defeats the enemies of Israel. Chapter 13 of Judges, verses 24 and 25. Judges 13, verses 24 and 25. This is the part of the story of Samson, who was also one of the judges. Judges 13, 24, and 25. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the boy grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zerah and Eshtaol. So here the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson to do the great deeds that he was called upon to do. And some of these are described, for example, in four, uh, chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. Judges 14, verses 5 and 6. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and he came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion roared against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion asunder as one tears a kid, and he had nothing in his hand. So here Samson barehanded rips this lion to pieces because the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him to equip him to do that. And then in verse 19, we see uh, again how he conquers over the enemies of Israel. Uh, verse 19, and the Spirit of the Lord 
came mightily upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the festal garments to those uh, who had told the riddle. And then finally in chapter 15 and verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of an ass and put out his hand and seized it, and with it he slew a thousand men. So here's the famous uh, slaughter uh, with the jawbone of an ass that Samson does because, again, the Spirit of the Lord had come mightily upon him. So this is the pattern in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would come upon appointed individuals for a specific task and a limited time to enable them to do that task to which God had called them. Any comment or question about that role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Steve. Um, the numbers uh, quote that you used, it sounds like the Spirit came upon Moses in a mighty way and the other people in a lesser way. And the idea of the Spirit being a person versus a force, you can kind of see how people might kind of get that idea that it's a force oh, where yeah. you say it comes on in lesser Oh, very, very, yeah, very much so. I mean, here it does sound like a force, doesn't it, in these passages I read. But I don't think that's inconsistent with saying that the Holy Spirit operates more mightily in some cases than in others. In the case of someone like Moses, you could imagine that the Holy Spirit would work tremendously through him, but with the 70 elders that were his underlings, it's not as though they had the same sort of powerful anointing that, that Moses did. So I think you're right. And probably, again, no Jewish person who's ignorant of Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament would think that we're talking here about a separate person, the Holy Spirit, uh, reading these texts in isolation. It's only when you read them in retrospect through the lens of the, the church that you can see how the Holy Spirit is already at work in the Old Covenant. Yes, Amy. The, the other thing I find a little bit odd about some of those passages in um, Exodus is that it, it talks about taking part of the Spirit which is upon you, Moses. And that seems a little bit odd language if he's a person. Right. I think that was the same point Steve was making. Yes, it does, it does sound like a power. I'm going to take a portion of the Spirit that is on you and put it on these other people. But I think that that's not inconsistent with saying what that means is that the Holy Spirit operates more mightily through some people than through others. Um, uh, granted, if you read these I, in isolation from Christian revelation, I, I could see where one would take it that way. Gen uh, Dennis. Yes, have you read any rabbinical commentary on these passages, and how do Jews view them? You know, I, I haven't. That would be very interesting, but I've not been sufficiently uh, motivated to read uh, rabbinical commentaries on these passages, but that would be worth doing. Taiwan. I heard that God deal with Abraham according to his faith, and he deal with Israel, uh, children of Israel, 
according to the law. And it's almost like Abraham has an agreeable spirit with God. So like the Holy Spirit, um, that the fruit of the spirit uh, in it, you don't need any law. So, um, and in teaching, um, it's a teaching is a act of imparting one spirit. And that's how, um, and I was wondering whether um, the Old Testament was the, the Holy Spirit deal with people according to the law because there's no indwelling of the spirit. And then the, in New Testament, uh, through Jesus, uh, we, are, we have an indwelled spirit, okay. and so it's, it's according to the faith. Yeah, okay, I, I see what you're getting at now. At first, I was a little bit resistant to what you were saying, but I, I think there's truth in what Taiwan is saying. When you look at the Old Covenant, as I say, the Spirit of God was not the permanent daily possession of the average believer. His anointing would come upon people to carry out special tasks, but then it would leave uh, them, and they, they wouldn't have that anointing anymore. Um, by contrast, in the New Testament, we have the permanent indwelling and anointing of the Holy Spirit to help us. And one of the contrasts between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is spoken of very eloquently by Jeremiah, where he says, I will put my laws into their hearts and write them on their minds so that there will be that inner sort of motivation and willingness and ability to do what God wants us to do. So it's not as though the law is contradictory with the righteousness of Christ, but I do think there is an internalization that, that Jeremiah talks about with respect to the new covenant that would come through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that you're not just obeying an external law under your best abilities. You are being internally empowered and motivated to live as God wants you to. And that's why Jeremiah can say, they won't say in that day, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the, the greatest. That's the, the description of the church. Well, what we'll do next time then is look more closely at the contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think we'll see that what corresponds to the temple in the Old Testament, where the glory of God, the power of God dwelt, in more, most specifically, is in the New Covenant, the believer's body the believers of. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that contrast next time. So let's close with a benediction. And now may the same Holy Spirit who inspired Othniel and Jephthah and Gideon and Samson to do mighty works for God, inspire us to do mighty deeds in the service of his kingdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.